darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Today we inaugurate a series dedicated to women of the occult, exploring their ideas, writings, contributions and influence on the evolution of esoteric thought and practice. In our present discussion, Rosemary Stelik and I focus on Dion Fortune, author of works on magic and Kabbalah, as well as a practicing magician and founder of the temple system, the Society of the Inner Light. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love and do well. Welcome. Good to have you here for the very first time, Rosemary. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Um, so Rosemary is um, a long-standing friend and associate of mine, uh, a dear soror, and uh, we've known each other since uh, probably around 2009, I think it mm-hmm. was. So. Um, and uh, we've been discussing doing some talks on this podcast potentially in the future, um, exploring women in the occult. I'd say women in Thelema, but I think we could probably say this is a little wider even mm-hmm. just than uh, the Thelemic community and that sort of thing. Uh, case in point today, we want to take a look at Dion Fortune. Yes, indeed. Who uh, you had just mentioned to me, uh, uh, a lot of people who talk to you are surprised <laughs> to find out she was a woman. Yes. <laughs> I've had the classic, oh, psychic self-defense. I love the book he wrote. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have not actually read that book. I, I've never uh, gotten around to that, but I've really got to dive into that. Uh, yeah, it's up. one of my favorites. I've heard nothing but good things, and it seems mm-hmm. like it's... Uh, it's uh, okay. Do I understand correctly? Is it a fiction book that is just as well may uh, it kind of portrays a lot of the nonfiction stuff that she's? Uh, it. I think out of all of her works, it would be one that's more of like a uh, a tome, a, sh- a book of shadows of techniques and okay. meditations, methods, etc. I may be thinking of a different book because I was thinking. Uh, I think it's in the. Um the book that I was reading just recently, um, Alistair Crowley and Dion Fortune by Alan Richardson. I just happened to come across that and uh, figured, okay, we were going to talk about Dion Fortune, so that seems awful on the nose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because um, the first exposure I ever really had to Dion Fortune was by chance Mm. uh, due to my um, deep devotion to witchcraft Mm -hmm. uh, since childhood and I had come across the witch's bible um, just before I entered university written by uh, Janet and Stuart Farrar Mm -hmm. and they had a chapter dedicated in there to a ritual dedicated to the sea priestess that they told um, the reader was inspired by Dion Fortune's The Sea Priestess 
tome, Ooh. the book itself, and I thought, oh, who's this Dion Fortune? That's how I came across. Mm-hmm. I wonder what he's about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With all due respect to, um, you know, fluid genders, intergender consciousness, identity, etc., I'm just simply thinking in terms of um, the past and how far we've come from uh, gender interpretation, etc. But back in the 19th and 20th centuries, these were very real issues of uh, segregation, silencing, being behind the scenes, who gets to be up front, etc. So I think it's really important to see the work of our forebearers that have brought us to this open uh, vista of freedom that we enjoy now. Absolutely. Yeah. um, I was just starting to read uh, through... um the mystical Kabbalah, uh, Dion Fortune. And uh, I had read that years ago, and probably about a decade or more ago. And uh, it was one of those books that kind of disappeared because I think I either I had lent it to somebody and then just <laughs> neglected to get a hold of it again, or whatever, it went on its journey. And um, it's been such a long time since I've read it, I forgot just what her writing is like. Mm-hmm. And um, she's somebody who I would actually compare to Crowley in terms of her prose and her um, ability to convey uh, some of the ideas that she's trying to get across with yes. regard to uh, the higher states of consciousness and how we attempt to access them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. I definitely find it fascinating to see the people that have put forth their great work just by virtue of being called by their higher self to, you know, mm. tap into the interdimensional and to express our immortal and magical selves through works. Because someone like Dion Fortune in her time was extremely prolific. Mm-hmm. I just didn't realize the extent to which until I really started to dive in. Not only the novels and the and the manuals of practicum, but uh, essays, lectures, mm. etc. Yeah, I mean, just to set the stage, I suppose, I, we haven't gotten, like, with the podcast, we haven't had a lot of um, necessity to dive too much into people's um, biographies mm-hmm. s- just to lay out on the table or anything like that. But just to give some context, uh, Dion Fortune was contemporary with Crowley, I forget exactly when Dion Fortune was born. She was younger, I think 94? She was born on December 6th of 1890. 1890, okay. And she was born as Violet Fraser Firth in North Wales mm-hmm. and was a daughter of an upper middle class family. So she had a traditional Christian upbringing mm-hmm. and had um, access to higher education uh, and did lean toward uh, studying psychology that eventually kind of tipped deeply into counsel and mediumship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, just suddenly <laughs> took this intense turn and went full bore esoteric. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of the uh, um, psychology studies she carried over with her. That's right. And she was highly influenced by the Theosophical Society, Mm -hmm. as established by uh, Madame Blavatsky. Um, But she had an aversion to religious authority. Mm -hmm. So 
um, for all of her traditional sort of um, consciousness that people perceive now, at the time, she had a very kind of like a suspicious relationship to the establishment. So she was highly influenced by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and all of their, mm -hmm. you know, more sort of mystical um, explorations into tapping into one's uh, higher self. Um, she very deeply uh, pursued the concept of gnosis, the individual having a direct pipeline to source. Mm -hmm. And through the Theosophical Society and various um, experiences like that, she was able to give uh, language to her philosophies, one of the concepts of which was um, that she received a direct transference of wisdom from ascended masters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she even uh, had her own channeled work. That's right, yes. The Cosmic Doctrine, which uh, uh, you could compare to the, the Book of the Law that Crowley received. Absolutely. It seems like it's a bit of a different uh, context for the thing because hers was... Um, it sounds like it was a series of channeling yeah, um, sessions. I, yes, I think so. Um, and I think she had a partner mm -hmm. yeah. who she worked with. Um, and she managed to put these extremely sophisticated spiritual ideas into layman's terms for people to be able to access on a personal level. Mm -hmm. So she was one of the first people to um, pronounce the importance of seeing all gods as one god, mm -hmm. all goddesses as one goddess, you know, just right across the board that we are a vessel for the divine as much as we are divine. And she very intensely promoted uh, seeing the human body as a, as a temple and a vehicle to transfer that holy energy to the mind and to convey magic mm -hmm. through our entire uh, physical sense body, mind, and spirit. She was one of the first people to really go there mm -hmm. in her circle as a woman. Yeah, and I think she also had uh, something that uh, goes really nicely with Thelemic principles, which mm -hmm. is the idea of uh, not just buying into things whole cloth, but mm -hmm. having a skeptical attitude about them. Yeah, very philosophical, I think. Just the questioning, mm -hmm. the exploring, the the inquisitiveness. Yeah, case in point, she uh, with the cosmic doctrine in the introduction to it, she herself says, um, on reflection, she can't say that there's anything within it that would be um, that wouldn't already have existed somewhere in her own mind. Mm -hmm. So she's really confronting the idea that okay, let's look at this scientifically so to speak in terms of whether it's whether we can say that it's truly a channeled thing from a different intelligence than my own mm -hmm. or if it's something that's coming up from me in some way but she was certainly clear that it's like if it was just from her then uh, she didn't know how she did it so it was, <laughs> yeah you know. it's fascinating because i think that that really starts to illustrate the concept of the union of macrocosm and microcosm mm -hmm. and that whole sort of like absolutely that fluid passageway between mm -hmm. those realms yeah crowley often talks about genius the genius mm -hmm. so um that thing which works through you and you are essentially 
equivalent to the tool that the genius is working through. Mm -hmm. And so uh, um, being able to open yourself up to allow that to flow through. And that sounds very much on par with what you're talking about. In her uh, pursuit of connection to the divine without semantics getting in the way, at some point she did end up later in her years, probably in the 30s, like between the two world wars, she started becoming more open to the idea that um, concepts of paganism are as relevant as uh, Christian esoteric concepts. So Mm -hmm. um, the gods of animism of the earth are as relevant and real as Christian esoteric representations of the divine Mm. so it's around like i think it was the 30s where she wrote the goat foot god and she started to really open herself up as a priestess that way um but i found one of the things that was really fascinating about her self-expression was she kept oscillating between this high christian esoteric mysticism and then when things got a little too intense like in the outer world she would Uh, Or, you know, she, well, if I were to step back, she was naturally that, and she would explore more sort of like animistic concepts until things in the outer world got too intense. Mm. And then she would snap back into what she was familiar with. Um, That, uh, that sort of wrestling with her inner uh, spiritual ethos or whatever how she felt about mm-hmm. things what her philosophy was is very palpable in all of her writing like mm-hmm. you see this wavering back and forth like an explorer yeah and you know uh that makes that puts me in mind i don't know if this applies directly to that but it puts me in mind of uh sometimes uh, people will see something like that as being an indication of or the fact that somebody uh, may change down the road they may feel a certain way at a certain point and then change down the road uh they may see that as evidence of uh, incon- inconstancy or mm-hmm. you know um something along those lines but mm-hmm. uh um it's something that i would personally respect quite highly because if you're willing to uh constantly be reevaluating yeah. and constantly growing that's that's a really important factor it's this courage to uh hold introspection with yourself absolutely and your beliefs and Mm -hmm. to challenge them it's actually a very ancient sort of greek philosophical uh Mm -hmm. consciousness yeah i think uh if you're the opposite of that i think would simply be a fanatic right you know um somebody who's not willing to constantly reassess Mm um and so she, uh, you're mentioning like um, the Christian backdrop mm-hmm. of her life obviously uh, played a strong role for her. Yeah. And uh, there's also, she's clearly uh, very, um, very taken with or very into, <laughs> very into a lot of the, the British kind of pagan mm-hmm. um, backdrop as well yeah like she was uh she was fascinated by the as i like to call it like the pre-christian earth-based animism mm-hmm. of individuals indigenous to that land she felt a very strong um connection 
to uh, humanity's uh, connection to the land from which they came only because like we're a product of the earth of that geography mm-hmm. it's not to say we're bound by that but that that somehow has an imprint on our dna absolutely so you think about you know uh, someone wandering through the black forest mm-hmm. you know if you think of the witches at the time and the deep connection they had to that land it was like one of the cross-pollinations that happened where, as you know, um, Alistair Crowley met Gerald Gardner. Mm-hmm. And there was that sort of uh, cross-pollination of appreciation of the ancient forces of nature. Yeah, and collaboration, really. Yeah, that was also, in many ways, kind of anti-establishment. Absolutely. Because you think about, you know... The state of politics in the world and the raging of the wars and mm-hmm. uh, witches at the time uh, gathered to project forces to thwart off invasion, you know? Yeah, that's something that um, Alan Richardson touches on a little mm-hmm. bit um, in uh, in the book that I mentioned, Alistair Crowley and Dion Fortune. He's talking about, uh, uh, he's kind of working his way backwards through both of their biographies starting from roughly the world war ii period because that's uh just after which when both of them passed away that's right yeah um and so he mentions uh some of the um purported stories of Mm -hmm. both of them being somehow involved in rituals yes to, uh, to fight against the nazis and that sort of thing this whole sort of like cloaking their beloved country with like a force field of protection and calling upon, mm-hmm. you know, the ass- the assistance of uh, the celestial realms to draw down that power. And it's interesting because if you study a lot of the uh, Gardnerian witchcraft principles of the time, you know, you have your classic setup with um, one of the fundamental concepts of ritual being the raising of the cone of power mm-hmm. within uh, covens in order to uh, manifest uh, specific magical outcomes and you know that that practice of protecting mm-hmm. uh, England, Europe, what have you from invasion was definitely a preoccupation of a lot of occultists at the time mm-hmm it's hard uh, reading um, some of these things. Uh, I think that's one of the criticisms I would have when it comes to Alan Richardson is just the... Uh, it's tricky when there's a certain level of credulity that comes across that is uh, um, makes me wonder if... Uh, I always... You know, it's always interesting to find where the truth lies as far mm-hmm. as you can, fully knowing that we can oftentimes not really get at the truth mm-hmm. um but uh sometimes when you have a, a somewhat credulous writer it can be more interesting to them to look at things from the point of view of gossip or from the point right. of view of like a good yarn to be mm-hmm. pulled you know and also like we have the privilege of hindsight mm-hmm. through the ages to be able to look back and and uh, critique things that perhaps were not things that we were familiar with because it's outside of our time mm-hmm. um, I'm not naive to the fact that people on some level can become a product of their era and their environments but what I find really profound is some of these magnificent occultists were able to transcend their own bondage to their time mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and convey concepts that still apply to this day. Yeah, absolutely. And have an influence. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a common thing for people to look at some of these um, some of these individuals from the present day perspective and project back onto mm-hmm. them the uh, the current popular values and that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, I say popular values. I, I feel like that might come off a little <laughs> bit snarky, but it's like, I mean, it's what it is really. Like the, what's going foregoing in the popular uh, mentality mm-hmm. at the moment. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have a discerning enough mind to know that there are, you can split hairs and find all sorts of problematic aspects with uh, figureheads of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but my focus has always been on what is it about the individuals that have influenced us through time that represents this sort of deeper fabric of sacredness that binds us as a human mm-hmm. species? you know, and elevates us beyond our mortality to our immortal selves. That is what really, I think, is my focus when I think of a lot of these individuals. Not to turn a blind eye, because I I also see the problematic human condition Mm -hmm. that makes anyone insufferable. Um, but the same could be said of us, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, I think that it's important to be authentic. Yes. And part absolutely. of that authenticity is is being able to acknowledge the problems and acknowledge mm-hmm. not the, just the problems that other people have, but the problems that we ourselves mm-hmm. are carrying around with us. Um, now, when it comes to Dion Fortune, she had a uh, temple system set up. She did, and, yes. And I, it sounds to me like I don't know a lot about it, so I'm going to just sort of, you know, throw darts at <laughs> what I do <laughs> right. now. But basically, it sounds like there was like an outer court that was uh, sounded much more Christian from the, yes. just the superficial. Like this sort of uh, energy of a sanctum sanctorum mm-hmm. within, and then the outer courts, as you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. And she came from, as you say, the Golden Dawn background. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like she was kicked out of the golden dawn judging by what alan richardson was saying i'm not oh, sure if interesting. that was ac- accurate or not but it sounded like she was kicked out because of well the same reason that uh, crowley was purported right. to be kicked out which was revealing temple secrets yeah. uh in her writings which she in her writings specifically says she doesn't she won't do but mm-hmm. th- i guess if this is correct if this information is correct then uh, i suppose the temples saw it differently right <laughs> and you know in any sort of secret order. Naturally so. There will be some individuals that are slightly miffed by mm. such gestures, however innocent or mm. um, what have you. But uh, she did have that system with the um, your classic setup with the altar in the center mm-hmm. of a space and then the sort of outer diameter. Very golden Dawn style kind of mm-hmm. setup, yeah. Yeah, do you know very much about both the outer order and the inner order, or is it a little bit... I can genuinely say that out of respect for her tradition, I would not consider myself to be an expert in this sort of Mm -hmm. minutia of all the workings, but I did get the sense that there would definitely be like a central altar space uh, presided over by the high priest or priestess with like stations around the the central mm-hmm. um i guess figurehead doing the leadership role uh, through which celestial powers would be invoked and channeled almost like a conduit you know mm-hmm. 
I kind of, for whatever reason, I think of Nikola Tesla. For some, <laughs> I just think of that sort of like the, the yeah. electromagnetic frequencies coming through the portals of the human representation within that circle, as is embodied by the people involved, and then it channeled to that central point. Yeah. Um, but I will in no way, shape, or form disrespect uh, Dion Fortune's method by striving to explain what <laughs> she did, because I, I would say I'm in the dark with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure there are many out there that, you know, if they could offer their insights into the details of uh, her tradition, I would be fascinated to um yeah it hear. sounds like she's um very much uh, like reading the mystical kabbalah uh i'm only part way through it at the moment but uh like getting back through it i remember mm-hmm. having read it back in the day as i mentioned but um i mean it's right there in the title the mystical kabbalah yeah. so she's <laughs> yeah. talking about it as the yoga of the west and yes. uh, um so i'm sure she also had a very magical aspect as well which would have probably been much more um, fleshed out in mm-hmm. psychic self-defense, I would imagine. Look, I, I feel drawn to the most. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a tie between um, psychic self-defense and the sea priestess. Mm-hmm. They're extremely beautiful books, like in, in its writing. Very accessible, extremely digestible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, with my personal obsession with David Bowie, I learned over the years that he had a huge reverence for Dion Fortune's work mm. and that uh, her work had a, a massive influence on him magically cool. as an individual <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> Not too surprised, but uh, <laughs> I have a few quotes from uh, the mystical Kabbalah, uh, one of which is... Uh, This is a very brief quote, but it is only a dead faith which remains uninfluenced by contemporary thought. And uh, that's something that I really like because she's using this in relation to the Kabbalah itself. Um, And one of the caveats that a lot of people feel it necessary to express when it comes to the Kabbalah, that there's a difference between what we uh, think of as rabbinical Kabbalah, Mm -hmm. kind of the old... Uh, traditional Jewish mysticism and magic and whatnot tied up with the Kabbalah versus what uh, would have been Dion Fortune's background. She was thinking of it as kind of a contemporary Kabbalah. And uh, this is very much the Golden Dawn kind of inspired right. hermetic yes. Kabbalah. I could see that. Mm-hmm. So, But I like that quote just as a general mm-hmm. sort of thought. It is a dead faith which remains uninfluenced by yes. contemporary thought. It just, it also, what I love about that and what ties it, interestingly enough, to witchcraft as much as ceremonial magic is that there is an intense in, um, focus placed on the importance of practice being a living entity mm-hmm. in perpetual motion, constantly flowing with the life force, which is in accordance with nature. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's thinking of uh, archaeologists digging up uh, things in ancient Egypt. Like they're not going to have that connection with Mm -hmm. what the living sort of uh, religion was. They're going to be speaking of it in dead terms. And they're, yeah, they're handling all the tools and the environments and the implements, etc. In a way that is like holding the bones of something and... It, it was a vehicle of transference, but 
in and of itself it's yeah it's not the same thing as experiencing interacting yeah. with that that bone the bones when they had the flesh on mm-hmm. them and <laughs> they yeah. could move of their own accord those instruments hold secrets that mm-hmm. that only came forth in a, a living active context yeah of uh ritual yeah, and I guess we can see that as uh, this is like a continuously evolving process with magic and uh, this subject matter as well, um, which is a constantly ongoing argument about mm-hmm. whether whether to be completely going back to the original texts, the original um, sources and that sort of thing, which I would argue for, but also it's also important to be constantly evolving and constantly living mm-hmm. as well. That's right. That's right. And uh, I love the way her work uh, translated um, experiences that were often reserved for the elite. Mm. And she um, anchored it to earth for people to practice their one-on-one relation relationship to the divine. Mm-hmm. However that may manifest itself, you know. Yeah. Um, she did have a quote that she had that I really love. It had an impact on me that I'd like to read to you. I think we discussed it earlier, but I felt it really important to read to people because um, I think it really gives description for, like it describes why individuals that regularly practice magic may um, exude an aura of of uh, intensity that's off-putting for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they have the purest of intentions, they're constantly opening themselves up to the unknown and to the mysteries and sometimes to very shadowy and dangerous energies mm-hmm. that have like a residual effect on our um, our physical as well as mental and spiritual selves. But um, I'll just read this to you as mm-hmm. I read again uh, earlier, to to convey this to anyone who may have felt perhaps a little misunderstood as a magician <laughs> or a, a witch or a ceremonial magician or a practitioner of any kind working with the higher mysteries, the mm-hmm. secret path. And she was quoted as saying, a trained occultist has an exceedingly magnetic personality And this is apt to prove disturbing to those that are unaccustomed to high-tension psychic forces. For whereas the person who is ripe for development will unfold naturally into higher consciousness rapidly in the atmosphere of a high-grade initiate, the person who is not ready finds these influences highly disturbing. (laughs) Definitely had experience with that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I find it really, um, really inspiring that she touches upon um, the risk mm-hmm. that one takes to devote themselves to a magical path of living. And it kind of is a warrior's path as well. You have to face a lot of... Uh, pushback i guess yeah, absolutely um and you have to face a lot of people projecting misunderstandings or their shadows or seeing you as subversive or mm-hmm. dangerous or to be silenced or any of a host of other things that 
um, a practitioner would find uncomfortable, but it's necessary as part of the path. Absolutely. To walk the path that reflects the courage of your convictions. Yeah, I think uh, I've definitely experienced that that kind of thing where, um, generally speaking, like I know for myself, for instance, I I, uh, I know the type of person that I am, and I know mm-hmm. the type of person that I would like to think that I convey, but uh, there have been, over the years, there's been the odd person who sees me as somehow dark mm-hmm. and somehow dangerous in some way. Like that's is, a bad thing, but what they're not digesting is that you have a healthy relationship to your your shadow self and absolutely. to the divine but it may just be off-putting for them because they're not ready yet to yeah. go there and and i think yeah you know it's interesting because i think you're right it's it's kind of like most people tend to have to be guarded mm-hmm. and uh kind of closed to a certain extent and then able to open up when they feel safe to mm-hmm. and that sort of thing but i think that yeah working with these kinds of energies and things uh, causes you to be a little more open, and some people can pick up on that. Yeah, and yeah, that can be a little bit disturbing if you're not ready for it. Because humanity, as a species, is a very deep and intuitive creature, and uh, and it's no judgment upon where someone is on the path. We all reach where we need to at the right time, in the right way, mm-hmm. in the right moment. But um, because people, you know, some folks are more open to being a vessel or receiving um it could prove to be disturbing to someone that is just simply not ready for that Mm -hmm. and it's another form of um i would like to think of it as uh the kung fu of occult practice Mm -hmm. where you have to kind of push and pull and and be sensitive and compassionate to the human condition outside of your own vision still maintain your practice and everything but sometimes you you know have to (laughs) a little bit of smoke and mirrors to you know i think that's yeah something i've learned over the years Mm -hmm. is uh, having well-defined boundaries Mm -hmm. when they're appropriate is kind of an important thing (laughs) and to keep silence is one of the absolutely virtuous tenants sphinx yes yeah while we're at it let's pull another quote here Okay, and while you find that, I want to correct my uh, name of uh, Dion Fortune. Her birth name was actually Violet Mary Firth. Mm. Mary, this was her middle, middle name. Violet Mary Firth. Yes, side note. And what was the date of her birth again? It was December 6th, 1890. So she was a Sagittarius. That's right. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, so I have a couple of things here, one of which is... Um, here she's talking about the uh, the idea of uh, which I imagine she encountered with uh, and very much firsthand with dealing with the Golden Dawn system and uh, people within it and people like that uh, where uh, there's a lot of secrecy and kind of hush hush uh, approach to the way that they're dealing with um, occult ideas and secrets and whatnot mm-hmm. and she's saying for my part. I believe that this selfishness and exclusiveness is the bane of the occult movement rather than its safeguard. It is the old sin of retaining the knowledge of God in the hands of a priesthood and denying it to all outside the secret clan. Justifiable enough when the people were savages, but unjustifiable in the case of the modern student. 
I think that's fairly uh, reasonable. <laughs> it's it's really cool how, at least for me personally, I pick up this constant yearning to um, open up one's self to that higher mystery and not have these mechanisms of fear and authority. Yeah. And I mean, within ritual... There is a certain level of importance that should be adhered to when it comes to like time and measure and when certain aspects of a ritual moves from one phase to another. These are sacred things, but I get the sense that she's always like having to face um, like the greater uh, organizations of like church and, you know, like mm -hmm. the keepers of the structure that are determining the properness of how things should be conveyed like these extra bodies that yeah. she just simply wants to divest herself of yeah and you know uh i feel like there's a lot of uh, uh a lot of these things kind of develop over time where mm -hmm. it's it's like trying to maintain the secrets for uh there's reasonable um ideas behind it a lot of the time where it's like okay well if somebody goes through this temple system then they're going through the initiations they want the things revealed to them in the right time so that it takes the full effect that it's supposed mm -hmm. to have and that sort of thing and that's the argument for a lot of the secrecy and that's sacred mm -hmm. there's sacredness that's part of the sacredness that. you're right yeah. yeah but then um i just get the sense that a lot of times there was you know due to society to era to experience to what class she may have experienced in in growing up in England, mm -hmm. um, that there was a certain sort of fight all the time mm -hmm. to rend the mysteries from the covetous and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, disseminate it amongst humanity to help us all evolve. Yeah, and that seems to really be the driving force for her, mm -hmm. is sharing these ideas so that it's uh, facilitating others. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like she was... Um, I almost feel like that was a stupid question. <laughs> I was going to say, do you feel like she was uh, hindered by being a woman in in her work? Um, I would say yes, on some level. I mean, she had more privilege, perhaps, than other women at the time, which allowed her to navigate certain realms, perhaps, that others could not. But, I mean, even if you think traditionally of who the the keepers of ancient Kabbalistic mysteries are, it's pretty much a brotherhood. And I don't mm -hmm. diss that. It's a fact. It's an ancient, ancient phenomenon. Um, but I feel like she was trying to get beyond projections of gender class etc in in some ways mm -hmm. in some ways i mean in other ways she was perceived as very gender normative mm -hmm. you know she did the whole binary thing with what a woman is what a man is and i mean we're a lot more liberated at this point but she had certain um you know things that she wrestled with that were clearly a result of her being born at the time she was born in. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, she was the one who, unlike other women, really intensely promoted that people be nude or sky-clad, as it's called, under their robes when they ritualed together to create mm -hmm. the male-female tension in a mm -hmm. circle when they work together. Not like 
garishly where everyone's mm-hmm. like, hey, not that it's garish to be nude, but some traditions are just not open to that kind of mm-hmm. thing. As a ceremonial magician with everyone clad in robes, um, she still adhered to the sacredness of the nude body as a temple, as a vessel of the divine. And I love that. I love that she had that sense of reverence mm-hmm. for the body. And I think that, yeah, that's, it's unfortunate that we, uh, it's not possible to have more engagement with that on a mm-hmm. wider scale. Uh, and I say it's not possible because just from firsthand experience feeling like, you know, when we had at one point here in Toronto, we had the Gnostic Mass happening for a little while. And uh, there's a line in the Gnostic Mass where uh, the priestess is sitting on the altar. Are you sure you should be revealing this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's very revealing. But <laughs> um, there's uh, the priestess will be sitting on the altar the uh, veil will be closed at the time and she will divest herself of her her clothing, her robes. And Crowley has a line, a little note there, a stage note that says, in vulgar countries, <laughs> oh, wow. in vulgar countries, it's acceptable if she puts her clothes back on before they open the veil. Oh, wow. um, so, uh, and I always took that as being this snarky little, yeah. you know, well, <laughs> clearly England is not a, you know, a mm-hmm. civilized yeah. country. So uh, his own little job. At yeah. The but the, unfortunately, I mean, just in firsthand experience, I kind of like, yeah, we live in a vulgar country because. <laughs> unfortunately those of us that were immediately in the group and that sort of thing were totally respectful and totally treating this as a sacred thing but you know it's it was kind of a public setup for the thing and when we'd have people come in that were not close to the group already people just don't know how to handle themselves mm-hmm. you know and right it's, it's an unfortunate thing i think and i think that's part of the reason also why um you know, there is that constant dance between, like, how do we provide a safe environment mm-hmm. for ritual where, you know, each individual is respected as a living embodiment of the divine. Um, I know over the years, within various multiple circles I've explored and participated in and have walked through and been initiated through, there are very complex and divergent levels of acceptance and and uh, mm-hmm. aversion yeah. um, that you see manifested before you. You know, uh, I know for uh, for some individuals in the Thelemic community, I've, it's been you know uh, a little bit more. Um, what's the word I'm looking looking for? Um, it's been difficult, I guess, to have women feel safe in certain mm-hmm. experiences. I like to try to be a living embodiment of how one can be a strong, um, you know, self-empowered priestess. Mm-hmm. But not everyone has that same level of of um, experience or or even like willingness to to put up with some of the the sort of hairy situations you need to go through to get to that stage of yeah. you know like just fending off the assumptive 
things about what women are in the occult, yeah. you know, like it's especially just, in Salima because it's such a like we have the the image of Babylon and the image of the Scarlet Woman, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot of you know the guys on the web that are just that's what they're looking for, and it's such a complex archetype. It's mm-hmm. so complicated, so, very so complex, yeah. um, so many layers of of um, energy and force and symbolism and spirituality as well as like the intense force of nature that moves through that archetype that i don't i mean i don't think most uh, have as much exposure to trying to study or comprehend or no Mm -hmm. disrespect but we're not you know or not we don't have the alexandrian library where we could just lock ourselves up for like months on end and (laughs) have that scholarly exploration of archetypes mm-hmm. although yes a lot of people just go on the internet for like f- five seconds and go oh yeah. you know <laughs> this is what this is all about. this is yeah. what it's about but you know um it's much more complex than that yeah absolutely and and that's one of the i guess the the challenges is that uh, with the internet we have access to, it's the old story of we have access to all kinds of information, but it's this, you know, the problem is you have to wade through it all until mm-hmm. you find the good information, you mm-hmm. know, the worthwhile information. And, you know, uh, thinking on what Dion Fortune did in her own way, I felt like she represented an extremely uh, inspirational figurehead mm-hmm. for women of her time to to show that you can have that strength and grace and dignity and um you know holiness in your physical embodiment and still be a force of nature and dangerous and a mystery which is what the what the woman is you know mm. all of the thi- all of the embodiments of all that she was extremely intellectual she could spar with the best of them mm-hmm. um she provided the foundations of rituals that were unprecedented for the, the 20th century, still paying homage to the traditions from whence her inspiration came, um, but tried to get everyone to get beyond their station, whatever that means, you know, so we can connect to the wisdoms of ascended masters. Yeah, her her writing is... Um uh, having re-engaged with it. I don't know if I said this earlier just when we were conversing or if I had said it when we started recording or not, but uh, I feel like her writing's up there with Crowley's in terms of just the way that it's like um, uh, very intellectual, as you say, mm-hmm. and yet able to deliver it in a, deliver these ideas in a very clear way, mm-hmm. more so than Crowley in a, a lot of cases. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and yeah, just very, it's it's very insightful, really just packages it in just a, a great way to be able to uh, get a lot out of it so definitely i would recommend um if you haven't read dion fortune check out the mystical kabbalah i have not read psychic self-defense but it sounds like it's a uh, an atrocity that i haven't <laughs> that is actually the the book recommendation i would make would mm-hmm. be read uh, psychic self-defense it's quite a it's quite a blast mm-hmm. um i have another one here from um the mystical Kabbalah. It is only in that region of consciousness which transcends thought that the highest form of transcendental ideas is known and understood. 
So here, she's talking about the difference between what the mind is capable of grasping and the fact that the things that we're attempting to access are beyond that. And the, the Kabbalah is enabling us to, through the use of symbols to reach beyond what the mind is capable of grasping with normal thought. Uh, she goes on to say, Mystics have used every imaginable simile in the endeavor to convey their impressions. Philosophers have lost themselves in a maze of words, and all to no purpose so far as the unilluminated soul is concerned. The Kabbalists, however, use another method. They do not try to explain to the mind that which the mind is not equipped to deal with. They give it a series of symbols to meditate upon. And these enable it to build a stairway of realization step by step and to climb where it cannot fly. And there's this brief little sentence right immediately after that that I like. The mind can no more grasp transcendent philosophy than the eye can see music. That's a good analogy for that. Says the music teacher. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it, I love that, the way she's talking about mm -hmm. this subject matter, because it's uh, it really helps to get at the point. Mm -hmm. I think with the Kabbalah, it's so easy to get kind of lost in the in the weeds. Uh, so in this case, she's bringing it to the fact that this is essentially dealing with metaphysics, in the mm -hmm. sense that it's something that's beyond the physical, like the physical senses, and the normal thought processes and that sort of thing. And saying that we can reach beyond that and and connect with this higher level of consciousness. Well, see, that's what I was about to address is that even in the language she's using, it gives you the impression that she's saying there's certain things we can't reach, but the fact that she does unveil that we are actually not only reaching that through specific um, rituals, meditation, symbols, etc., but we are actually of that, mm -hmm. which is why it's not beyond us. There is the illusion that it's beyond us. Yeah, that's and very true. And that is like an inspiring mind expansion for people that wouldn't have considered that. It's like, oh, I'm actually of that. Mm -hmm. It is what I am. It is only the layers of perception that keep me removed from the truth of that eternal self. Mm-hmm. And at least that's what I, I intuit a lot from her writing. Yeah. And as she says, the, uh, the Kabbalah is based around the tree of life, mm -hmm. which functions as a sort of map, both on the grand scale, a map of the universe. The and macrocosm. The, yep. And on the smaller scale, the map of the individual. Which we are, it's microcosm. Yeah. So that's definitely... Uh, I remember when I was first, uh, I guess, before I even knew there was anything to magic or anything like that, I had reached, I had done all kinds of meditation and that sort of thing. And I think at some point when I was in my early 20s, I got to a point where I was just kind of lost in an abyss. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out how to go any further without having some kind of landmarks and some kind of map. Mm -hmm. And so when I eventually did discover the the Tree of Life... It was like an aha moment. It was like, mm -hmm. here it is. This is the map. It's cool. Like we all find our way to uh, peel back layers of of illusion mm -hmm. to our connection to the eternal. And I know that um, when I read 
the works of individuals like Dion Fortune grappling with the greater mystery of her eternal soul and existence. It makes me think of like epiphanies that I had with my own self-imposed bondages in my younger years, like when you're a teen and stuff, when you're Mm -hmm. racing through the tornado years of your 20s. Um, And when you start to really sort of do your shadow work around that and realize these are your own cultivated um, veils of bondage and being as one with the eternal transforms you into a shapeshifter where you don't get bound by you know Mm -hmm. the circumstance of your reality as it stands or your gender or your you know cultural experience or what have you at least that is what it represented for me Mm -hmm. um everyone has a different experience of somebody's writing of course but that was a huge epiphany of of uh to celebrate yeah <laughs> you know? she she also uses the uh, analogy of the kings of adam the, as an example in the bible there's the idea of the kings of adam were the the earlier kings almost representing an earlier formation of the world that were warring amongst <laughs> themselves and they had to fall away so that a new kingdom could arise in their stead and she's using the analogy to express the inner warring of the different parts of the mind mm-hmm. so that uh, the kings of Adam are those different aspects of your own mind in that exactly that whole process that you have to go through to, yeah you know the the legion that you sense is your singular self mm-hmm. so I like that and I also like um, I was debating whether or not to get into a thing about uh, um, because when it comes to Christianity and the idea of the Bible and that sort of thing. Um, I think that a lot of occultists, especially Thelemites, are very averse to those things. And I have no problem being averse to Christianity, but I also have no problem reading the Bible and uh, exploring Christian ideas or Christian thinkers, because personally, I like the idea of essentially cannibalizing all of it (laughs) it's like eating the heart of the enemy if you want to think of it that way (laughs) that is an eloquent way to put it yes i i feel that um a lot of the different traditions of religion in the world serve what they must for Mm -hmm. individuals on such various and complex levels that one cannot determine the good or bad or something of something it has to be a very personal relationship um i've I've over the years become more in tune to uh, vibrations and concepts and threads of themes and symbols and truths, and it, and the semantics of things start to fall away for me. Mm-hmm. You know, more like a, a direct transference of certain cosmic mm-hmm. vibrations, whatever that is, is, as insane as it sounds, but. <laughs> um, I won't lie, I've had a long history of um, animosity toward, you know, my experience with the Christian religion, but it took me a lot of shadow work and uh, personal intellectual homework and stuff just to try to see beyond mm-hmm. one's human aversions and just try to see the, the sort of like, the, the sort of hawk eye view of what all of these things are 
where they vibrate in unison, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I think there's much to be said for just uh, opening yourself up to energies, frequencies. And don't get s- so caught up in the door frame that you're not moving through the door. You yeah. know, <laughs> I see the door frame as like the language mm-hmm. that people get obsessed with. Yeah, it's sort of like, I mean, you're describing these things in very ambiguous terms necessarily. I mean, it's the same thing that Dion Fortune's talking about with this, uh, these things that are beyond the mind's ability to uh, categorize mm-hmm. and, and kind of grapple with. Mm-hmm. So using symbols as a means of getting at those things. It kind of um, breaks through the sort of yeah. like... Um, the eddy that we all get locked into as a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because our concepts about things and our way of conceptualizing things have a nasty, sticky kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> aspect to them that gets us stuck in, in uh, semantics, as mm-hmm. you say. So, um, But uh, I, there's a common uh, thing that comes up in a lot of these writers where the paradigm that you, are, that you grow up in is important to you. You know, it's it's uh, even if you're rebelling against it, it's the type of thing that there's a reason you're coming out of that, or you can perceive it as something that you need to process in some way. Yeah, like a necessary imprint upon mm-hmm. uh, the DNA of your soul in order to move through this third dimension. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely feel like for myself, having been raised Roman Catholic, that was something that. Uh, I wanted to be a Catholic priest as a kid, and then at some point just got disillusioned with it at the usual adolescent age, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then completely went you know away from it, and then explored different things and had this complicated kind of uh, <laughs> you know yeah. it gets complicated uh, <laughs> with my relationship with the with the religion, but um, it was uh, important to my development to you know, as something to engage with. So Yeah, and I I know for myself, I feel very grateful that I had an extremely diverse Mm -hmm. exposure to concepts of not only spirituality, um, but atheistic vibrations as well. Not necessarily from me, but from the figureheads around me. Mm. Um, Our family, we, on my maternal side, we're Magyar Romani, so... Hungarian Roma on my mother's side. So we had that upbringing of the pre-Christian animistic earth-inspired spirituality Mm -hmm. that involved, you know, interpreting each other's dreams and reading tarot. I have family members that have read tarot. I grew up in that environment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a sister that reads tea leaves and coffee grains. And I mean, these things were working symbiotically while my mother had some fantasy about us going to catholic school like it would (laughs) you know somehow make us acceptable Mm -hmm. in society um so i had a lot of the cognitive dissonance that came between my private life and Mm -hmm. the outer world of of the school system but i'll tell you one thing if it's one aspect that really came out in my upbringing it was how to um, integrate all of the threads of experience I was surrounded by in a 360 degree mm. radius. So I may not have resonated with some of the scripture as a child, but I loved ritual. 
Mm-hmm. I loved seeing the robes and the chants mm-hmm. and I f- and feeling the you know the transference of 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 human being and the eternal kind of moving between itself and and its outer and inner dimensions like I didn't have words for that but I could feel things you know that's mm-hmm. why vibrations and energies and the ambiance of things the f- frequencies are really important yeah it's funny when uh, uh i talk to people who have never seen a catholic mass before for instance or if like uh for myself even going away from it getting really into the occult and then having gone to a mass like being like eh, i can deal with this you know it's not a big deal at this age mm-hmm. <laughs> and then being bored into my skull for two hours but uh <laughs> it was yeah. like the type of thing that it, all the same watching it it's like <laughs> This is such a blatant magical ritual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's exactly. just like right there. Yeah, there is, there is value to be gleaned from any experience if you have, that you have open, eyes to see. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but um, bringing it back around, this is, um, I guess, relevant because, again, we've got Dion Fortune. She's engaging with these British kind of pagan ideas that uh, go deeply into the the british soul and uh, the the earth there and everything um and then but at the same time i mean like i had mentioned there's this outer court to her temple that seems to be a very jesus-based outer court i don't know much about it or anything like well that, simultaneously but. it's interesting that you bring this up because she was grappling with this within herself mm-hmm. she really deeply related to the christian esoteric vibration she referred to christ as an ascended master mm-hmm. um now that's like a whole other world that i wouldn't even you know <laughs> wish to disrespect or, or dive into without someone who is actually a scholar of that mm-hmm. um but I think my main point of bringing that up is that even within her own experience, uh, having entertained pagan concepts, there was still the oscillation between, you know, the ascended master Christ, as she referred to, um, that frequency, versus, you know, whatever she may have been intuiting from the wisdom of the earth around her in ritual so it's i I have respect for the fact that she still left herself open to you know she didn't have to denigrate one tradition to elevate another she found a way to create a tapestry yeah and it does seem like there's a lot of syncretism uh, Mm -hmm. if that's if i'm getting the word right (laughs) um but bringing together different ideas from different religions and that sort of thing it was a heavy a very a uh, big movement mm-hmm. at the time that both Crowley and uh, Dion Fortune, um, that whole period of time that they were flourishing in, uh, was heavily into the idea of uh, combining ideas from different mm-hmm. religions and comparing comparative religions mm-hmm. and, and uh, looking for the similarities between things that connected things. Um, which makes sense because it's, again, it's kind of dipping beyond the image itself to see what's beyond that, you know? And I mean, even in my own exploration of Dion Fortune as an individual in history, um, 
I grapple myself with her archetype as an individual. You know, there are concepts that she espouses that I may not necessarily stand behind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have also equally respect for the fact that she rose in her time and had the courage of her convictions to uh, share teachings mm-hmm. that in some camps were subversive and in other camps were exhilarating. You know, she's definitely a lot more, um, like, controlled and intellectual in her process. And perhaps I may be in my own personal process. Mm -hmm. But I respect what she's teaching in, in that it could be another facet upon the jewel of the individual that I am. It connects me to the macrocosm. I just feel we have to gift ourselves with opening your mind to uh, experiences and concepts of the unknown that may not necessarily be first nature to us, mm-hmm. you know. Absolutely. Um, and that way. And if you walk away saying, you know, that's that's something I need to divest myself of. I just I don't resonate with that. Then there's no there's no loss there. It's still a victory because yeah. you've expanded into uncharted territories that... Yeah, I mean, as she said herself, it just becomes dead faith if it's not mm-hmm. living with the contemporary thought, mm-hmm. you know. So it it there should be room for ideas to evolve. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it's it was interesting to find out a little bit more about how how uh, like what kind of connection Dion Fortune and Alistair Crowley actually had, because um, I wasn't really clear on that. I kind of knew they had interacted in some way, mm-hmm. but uh, and it does sound like there was some letters going between them. And uh, there was one letter that uh, Alan Richardson quotes in his book that uh, Crowley says, I think he's writing to somebody else, but saying that he had sent her the MM, which is kind of, you know, I think Alan Richardson assumes that that meant the minutum mundum, which is the uh, the little world. And I, I guess uh, assuming that it was a chart of the uh, the microcosm. Oh, intriguing. Yeah. But, um, and he says, well, clearly she would have known what that was and she would have <laughs> been familiar with it anyway. So, um, but uh, it made me wonder if maybe, because there's like some of nothing said outright, but uh, there is some allusion to the idea that maybe she uh, was um, interested in the OTO. And uh, maybe it was something regarding that. So maybe there was an initiation there going on behind closed doors. Or yeah, something that like is that. definitely intriguing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I love hearing your experience of this book because you're you're teaching me things I never. Hey, you can take it away. With <laughs> <you today. laughs> it's it's intriguing to see all these other facets unfolding. Mm-hmm. And it does sound like I mean one of the things that uh, comes out in the book is that uh, she's clearly um, keeping the correct distance Mm -hmm. and boundaries um, with full, like being open with Crowley that uh, it's because there was obviously a lot of bad press around Crowley and Mm -hmm. it was the type of thing she wouldn't benefit from being too publicly connected. Right. You know what I mean? So, uh, um, so she was keeping due boundaries and that sort of thing, but it sounded like there was a lot of uh, uh, interacting Mm -hmm. kind of behind the scenes and that mutual respect as well that is that's the part that's really yeah cool. yeah especially con- considering the fact that crowley right didn't respect that many people 
<laughs> so uh, <laughs> when he did respect somebody and spoke of them with respect or spoke to them with, with respect, it was always, uh, oh, okay, this person must be uh, pretty impressive then. <laughs> that is a riot. Yeah, it's very nice to um, uh, see the humanity of mm-hmm. these figureheads that have left a legacy of inspiring works for us to explore. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to um, make sure that we celebrate how intersectional sharing of ritual, symbolism, uh, practice, visions, uh, magical stories, etc., has helped to inform the expansion of um, alternative, Mm quote-unquote, religious communities or spiritual communities, Breaking the bondage of the the strong authoritarian mm-hmm. clamping down of of human experience as is manifested by organized religion, you know mm-hmm. it's like it's not to uh, dismiss the importance of that for humanity, but it's nice to see the flowering of occult practices and spiritual paths, etc mm-hmm. springing from those few um what i would like to say ex- uh, sort of uh pioneers yeah that uh open a gateway of the mysteries and ways that spark the future incarnations of our imagination together yeah. you know and our practices it's nice to uh acknowledge uh, the fact that Dion Fortune was a pioneer and mm-hmm. was incredibly influential on the modern state of the occult and mm-hmm. the practices that people are undertaking and the practice that people are capable of undertaking as a result of the things that she was helping to to forward. Well, now there was this uh, there was this passage within the Sea Priestess. I have read it so long ago that I feel like I need to reread it. I, I can barely remember it. Mm. Um, but there was a passage that she had referring to the uh, ritual veneration of the goddess Isis, Auset, um, that involved a priestess going down to the ocean and having like dipping oneself seven times into the tides and invoking various epithets of of mm. the goddess. And I remember that having a huge impact on me because I had always found the divine feminine current through nature. Mm-hmm. But this was like this organized, stylized ritual, you know, invoking the multiple names of, mm-hmm. of Isis. And I don't know whether it was directly from the book that I got that, or which is more likely to be my second guess, how this, the sea priestess is processed by Janet and Stuart Farrar in their witch's Bible, and they had incorporated that passage into a ritual that was outwardly enacted. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being just the coolest thing when I first came across it Mm. in my, uh, you know, in my sort of earlier forays of of, um, exploration. The formalization really blew my mind. I was like, Mm. whoa, okay. I mean, outside of intuition and practice, there's something 
about this the sort of like ceremonial the ceremony of it that really struck me very cool okay well thank you so much for joining me with this conversation today rosemary it is my honor i'm very grateful for the invite well i hope we were able to to continue with more conversations like this in in various topics in the future absolutely yeah we'll see how things evolve from here Thanks again, and uh, 93. 93. Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes.